Amen. We can't help but think of the scripture that says um, that when he sets us free, we are free indeed. And I hope you today know that freedom. I'm going to begin today by challenging your biblical knowledge. This isn't going to be Bible jeopardy or anything. But let me just ask you, uh, and you don't have to tell the story. This, this means, yes, you're aware, and no, you're not. You, you know the story of Lot. You guys know about Lot. Yeah, he's the nephew of Abraham who accompanied Abraham into the land that God was showing him so that Abraham could lead and become a great nation. Now, Lot, that's probably not what he's best known for. He's actually best known for, I think, his wife. Do you remember his wife? What happened to her? She was, they were being delivered by the angels out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And his wife longingly looked back to the cities she loved. And God instantly turned her into a pillar of salt. Salt. Now, I know that Jesus said we are the salt of the earth and we are efforting to maintain and safeguard our saltiness, but that is not what Jesus had in mind, right? And, by the way, that's not why I bring up Lot. I bring him up today because I think Lot is a picture of what many of us are in our faith. He was essentially two people all rolled up into one. When he traveled with Abraham and experienced Life in Abraham's shadows and the blessing of God. Lot was aligned with God and living for his glory. Alongside Abraham, he was blessed by God. As a matter of fact, the pair grew so wealthy by God's blessing that they had so much livestock and so many servants that the two communities could no longer coexist, so they had to split up. And Abraham deferred to Lot. He looked at him and said, look, look around, pick your spot, you go first. And Lot identified the land that he believed his people could most flourish in, and Abraham took the leftovers. Now, what's interesting is Abraham continued to walk with God in the place he landed, but Lot drifted. Without the wise guidance of his steady, godly uncle, Lot was heavily influenced by the people of the territory he occupied, which included, but was not limited to, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So understand this about Lot. Under the right circumstances, he was a bright light. He was the salt of the earth. But when those circumstances changed and he was submitted to different influences, Lot, he looked lost. So he went from light to darkness, from found to lost. And his story ends in remarkable tragedy, while Abraham's story ends in triumph. Now, what, what's the difference between the two? Abraham obviously had a deep, 
abiding spirituality that did not depend on his circumstances. It didn't matter where he lived, who was around him. Abraham was committed to God. But Lot's spirituality was circumstantial. His spirituality was based on his experiences. As long as he was experiencing the godliness of Abraham, he was lined up. But when he experienced the godlessness of Sodom and Gomorrah, he drifted. Abraham retained his salt while Lot lost his saltiness. Now here's the question I want us to wrestle with today as we pursue safeguarding and maintaining our salt. How do we develop the deep, authentic spirituality like Abraham's? And how do we avoid the empty, fickle existence of Lot? How do we do it? To begin with, I want to define these two concepts or these two categories of our faith journey because I think it's important that we're all on the same page. When I use the term authentic spirituality, I'm talking about faith in God that is anchored firmly on the solid rock of God's truth. Okay, Jesus told the story about the man who built his house on the sand and it was blown away by the storms of life. And then he also said, but there was a guy who built his house on the rock and it withstood the storm. When we build our lives on the solid rock of God's truth, it is impervious to the storms of life. That is authentic spirituality. And so, whether the believer is experiencing good times or bad, living in plenty or in want, they're on the mountaintop or experiencing the valley, that believer is living faithfully and predictably for God's glory, come what may. That is authentic, transforming spirituality. Now, when I talk about someone whose quality of life with God is based solely on their environment and their experiences, I call it mountaintop spirituality. I'm, I'm referring to the person whose commitment is directly correlated to their feelings Okay, now, as, as someone told me after the first service, they said, look, th- this is so important. And he was right. This is critical that we understand it because we are a people who pursue affirmation through our feelings, especially in our spiritual journey. But that's mountaintop spirituality. The person who practices this kind of spirituality, they're... they're Righteous life is centered on or anchored in emotions, not God's truth and God's mission. Now, when when these mountaintop spiritualists experience a spiritual breakthrough with God, where they look up and they see Him move a mountain, and I hope you've seen Him move a mountain, because that's what God does. 
but they recognize it, they see it, it is an emotional experience for them, and they catch fire. Right? The, the, the thrilling experience stimulates in them frenetic activity. And, and oftentimes what happens with mountaintop spiritualists is that they outshine and they outpace the authentic spiritualist because they're on fire. Now the emotional response to the mountain-moving experience is initially very, very impressive. Think of the difference between the two like this. Okay, you know, Paul says that our walk with God, it's a race. It's the race marked out for us. We label the spiritually authentic runner as the tortoise while the mountaintop spiritualist we would label as the hare. Now, before we fully jump into this topic, let let me just say right here, I am in no way questioning or demeaning the mountaintop experience. As a matter of fact, I have been graced by more than one in my journey. And, And I am so thankful that I've seen God move the mountains. It, it happens when we go on retreats, when, when we go to camps, at times through prayer and at times in worship services. And what happens in those moments is that we are transported to a different place. It's beautiful. But we have to recognize that that experience is only going to carry us so far. The mountaintop only lasts so long. We, we have a tendency to glorify the mountaintop experience when what the mountaintop experience should do is inspire us to glorify God. He moves the mountains. He is who we worship. And listen, sadly, that experience doesn't transform us. It doesn't transform us. It may transport us, but it doesn't transform. See, transformation takes place when those experiences are supplemented with the disciplines that cultivate authentic spirituality. As a matter of fact those experiences can actually be harmful if we live our lives searching for the next one because what we pursue is what we worship. And if we are pursuing another mountaintop experience, we have created an idol out of those mountaintops. How does does it work? Well, I feel great. I felt great when this happened. I felt great when I joined a new fellowship or a new Bible study. And, and that feeling transported me. It was so exciting. And, and, then, and then the feeling went away. So do I move on to recapture that mountaintop feeling? Or do I dig in? I think 
one of the things that's happening in Western Christianity today is that we are in pursuit not of God, but of the mountaintop. And that can be detrimental. Now, Psalm 106, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. Psalm 106 is a salvation history psalm. Okay, it, it, it presents different events in the life of God's people, Israel, where they experienced the miraculous greatness of God. He did exactly what he wanted to do. He stepped into their turmoil, and he miraculously redeemed, delivered, saved his people over and over and over again. And we're going to look at one event, just one slice of this psalm, and I'm going to read it in just a moment in its entirety. And then we're going to walk through the passage of Scripture. But what I want you to do is see if you can identify signs of mountaintop spirituality as I read through this portion of Psalm 106. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. Psalm 106, verse 7. And you read along on the screens or in the Scripture. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. And they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. Their waters covered, the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. And in the wilderness, they put God to the test. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and understand the, the critical truth of this passage of Scripture. May we have the courage to be honest and the humility to be submissive to your will today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Look back at verse 7, if you will. When our ancestors were in Egypt. Okay, now obviously he's referring to the group of Israelites that were in captivity in Egypt. They were slaves. They gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. And they rebelled by the sea the Red Sea. Now, this verse describes what's happening or what happened after God sent the plagues that compelled Pharaoh to let God's people go. Okay, when, when they left, they left because they recognized that God 
sent 10 plagues. He did 10 miracles. He put them on 10 mountaintops. And Pharaoh wilted under the mighty hand of God. And so they departed. But when they left, Pharaoh decided he made a huge, huge mistake. Scripture says God hardened his heart. And, and he looked and said, I, I've just let our unpaid workforce go. He realized it was an error, so he rounded up his army and he sent them in pursuit of the Israelites. Well, by that time, God had led them to the shore of the Red Sea. And when the people looked back toward Egypt, they saw the dust cloud of the Egyptian army in hot pursuit. And you know what they did? They said, don't worry about it because God sent all those plagues and he got us out here. No, that's not at all what they said. They panicked. They didn't remember the miracles this is what Exodus 14.11 says. They said to Moses, they looked at their leader, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? What happened? They had the courage to leave, and now they're folding in unwanted circumstances. They were in despair. What happened? As the psalmist pointed out, they had forgotten about the miraculous experiences they had leading up to their departure. How could you forget those ten plagues? I don't know, but they did. The plagues were a distant memory. They were no longer inspiring trust in God. As soon as they were off the mountaintop, the people forgot. And the psalmist says they gave no thought to those miracles. So what happened? Look at verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through the desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Now, get this. Despite their memory lapse, despite of the fact they forgot all about what God had done, despite their complaining, their total lack of faith in God on the shores of the Red Sea, He still delivered them. He still moved that mountain. He saved them, not because they deserved it. He saved them because He's gracious by grace we are saved through faith. He saved them for His name's sake. Not for the mountain's name's sake. For His. He did it to reveal His power and His glory. He did it because, listen, He did it because He promised Abraham He would. 
He did it because he keeps his word. And you know what happened, right? It was miraculous. He parted the waters of the Red Sea. He gave them a way of escape. They walked through the seabed as if they were on a trail in the desert. And when every last one of those Israelites made it safely through, God closed that passageway and the waters covered the pursuing Egyptians and not a single enemy survived. It was a miracle of epic proportions. It was a great experience. It was a mountaintop experience. How did they respond? The same way we would. Like, how could you get past that without saying thank you? The people's faith in that moment was ignited by that mountaintop experience. Look at verse 12. Then they believed his promises. Wait a minute, did, did it require that? I, I thought they believed after the plagues. They did. That's why they left. But they forgot. And they stopped believing. Well, when God parted the waters of the Red Sea, then they believed his promises again. And they sang his praise. Buoyed by the experience of God's miraculous deliverance, which was the parting of the Red Sea, their flagging faith was revived, reignited. They believed his promises again. They believed them in the same way they did when they witnessed the plagues. They knew God was on their side. They knew he would keep his promises. So they worshiped God and they sang his praises for a little while anyway. It actually didn't last too long. Because their spirituality wasn't authentic. As a group, they had a mountaintop spirituality. Look at verse 13. But they soon forgot. <laughs> really? What can cause such a memory lapse? They soon forgot what he had done, and because they forgot, they did not wait for his plan to unfold. They didn't sit back saying, hey, God, he, he, he did it, and he's going to do it again, so we're just going to wait and see what he has in mind. See what his plans are. They didn't wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert... They gave in to their circumstances. They gave in to their craving, their urges, their hunger, their thirst. And in the wilderness, they put God to the test. 
Do you see what's happening here? Every time they experienced a mighty move of God, a genuine act of miraculous deliverance, the mountaintop revived them. Every time. After the plagues, they courageously left Egypt in faith that God would lead them. When they were threatened by the Egyptian army on the shores of the Red Sea, they forgot about God's work in the past and they rebelled against God. But God came through and they recommitted themselves to worship. But as the psalmist points out, they soon forgot. Why? Because life in the wilderness was too much. They craved the mountaintop and rejected the valley. They were hungry and thirsty and trying circumstances caused them to forget what God had done. Their circumstances alerted them that they had descended the mountaintop. And so instead of excitedly waiting to see what God's plan was, what God was going to do next, they turned on Him, complained, Their cravings demanded attention. Who did he think he was keeping them out there in that desert where they were void of miracles, void of evidence of God's provision? Their faith gains were completely erased because of their circumstances. And so they put God to the test. Like spoiled children, they put him to the test. This is the pattern. It's the way of life for those who practice mountaintop spirituality. Listen, if they're feeling it, they're all in. Nothing could be better. Their lights are shining brightly. But if they're not, if if they're feeling forgotten or abandoned or apathetic or disappointed, guess what? Their faith cup is empty. In other words, when they find themselves in the valley between mountaintops, their commitment fades to non-existence. So what do they do? They have to find another mountaintop. Got to change the feeling. Now, let me ask you a question. What category are you in? Is your commitment to God dependent upon the mountaintop? The feeling? Or is it anchored in His truth? Can your faith best be described as really high highs and disturbingly low lows? Or is it steady and growing? Is it like Abraham's or Lot's? Are you the tortoise or the hare? See, here's why we have to honestly assess those questions, because... The category you fall in determines your saltiness, and you are the salt of the earth. 
authentic spirituality is and always will be salty. But mountaintop spirituality, that kind of spirituality that is experience-driven and emotional, saltless. As a matter of fact, those kinds of extremes compromise your credibility and mine. So how do we know where we are? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going to tell you, but maybe you're not sure. We just examine ourselves. I'm going to share a few characteristics of mountaintop spirituality. I want to start there. Next week, we're going to work through the cultivation of authentic spirituality. But I want you to know this list is inspired by Gordon MacDonald's great book, The Life God Blesses. So what are these characteristics of an experience-based mountaintop spirituality? First, we need to understand that it requires little discipline of the soul. Okay, you can have these experiences, you can enjoy a mountaintop without spiritually preparing for it. You can experience them without prayer or Bible study, church attendance, service, or generosity. We, we see people have them when they've never thought of God, but they go into a service and God speaks and the mountain moves. These experiences can be triggered by music, persuasive speech, close calls, despair, or any number of stimuli. But the truth is, they just happen. It doesn't require discipline of the soul. But... To leverage them for the transformation God desires through them, that requires discipline. But you can have the experience without it. Second, spiritual experiences, these mountaintops, are a matter of emotion more than anything else. We're transported emotionally. It can be tears, it can be laughter a powerful sense of love or devotion. Yesterday, we had a celebration of life for Barbara Smith, and in that celebration, that worship experience, we, we sang Amazing Grace, and that song transports me. Always overwhelmed by God's grace. You can be on the receiving end of an act of extravagant generosity that meets a need and moves a financial mountain. And you can experience the emotion of being revived. You can listen to a powerful testimony and be transported. We are moved emotionally in those moments and we are compelled to praise just as the Israelites did after passing the Red Sea. 
They were emotionally engaged. But third, we have to understand that those experiences, those emotions, they're short-lived. They only last a little while. We're inspired, like the Israelites, we're inspired to pray, or like Peter, who was in the boat with the guys, storm was raging, they look up, and what do they see? Jesus is walking on the water. What did Peter do when he was transported by that mountaintop visual? Jesus walking on water. You know what he did? He jumped out of the boat and joined him. It was amazing. He was walking on water, literally. But it was a short walk. Really short walk. Because while he was walking on water, he started looking around. It's what you do on top of the mountain. Take in the view. And as he was looking around, he saw the storm raging. And the scripture says he saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink. In that case, his experience was over almost as fast as it began. But it was instructive because these mountaintop experiences last a short while. They transport us. They amaze us. But do they transform us? Do we leverage them for the purpose that God reveals them, where he reveals his glory? And he wants us to be transfixed, fixed, Steady worshiping as we remember what he's done. Fourth, mountaintop spirituality. It can leave us empty and tired. When, When we experience a spiritual high, it is energizing. And so we activate, right? We do something. But rather than asking what God wants us to do or determining how he created us to serve in the lane that he wants us serving in, we just do it all. We just go. Our lights are burning bright. And so we try to meet every need. We try to serve every ministry. We show up to every function. We are always there in this instance. But that's unsustainable. And you know why? Because we're doing it in our power. We're doing it energized by the emotional experience of the mountaintop. Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. If we're just plugged into the miraculous experience and we're not celebrating Him, we're going to burn out, fade away. And where once we were always always there, we will soon disappear. 
just move on. Because now that I'm tired, I need another mountaintop experience, so I'm going to have to go find one rather than seeking my Creator. I'm seeking the mountaintop. Fifth and finally, mountaintop Christianity leads us many times to become cynical and even resistant toward God. That, that's what happened to the Israelites, right? They, they didn't think God could deliver them from the Egyptian army, and so they began to complain. What, what's the problem? There were no graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here? And then God delivered them. They walked right through the Red Sea, stepped into the wilderness, into the desert, and they wondered if they would ever get any food. And so God sent them manna. And then they said, hey God, have you ever heard of meat? How about a little meat? What's wrong with you? And then God sent quail. But all along the way, when the emotion of the mountaintop wore off, they became cynical about God's provision and his promises because for them the miracles were too far and few too few and far between their bright lights dimmed and their salt lost its saltiness now here's the bottom line if we have to be emotionally energized to serve God, or we have to have a mountaintop experience to sustain the worship of God, then we're no different from Lot. We're like two people rolled up into one. And depending upon how we're feeling, that depends, that shows who's going to show up. It determines how we're going to live. In those instances, our faith is only as strong as our surroundings. We lack substance in our walk with God, and we lose our saltiness. But authentic spirituality, which is the spirituality of Abraham, it transcends circumstances. We're, we're going to talk about cultivating that next week, but, but let me tell you today what anchors it. This is important. Three times in the New Testament, the Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham took God at his word. He didn't need miracles to sustain his faith. He didn't need God to keep visiting him all the time. He just held on to what God said would happen, and he lived in light of God's unchanging truth. And man, he faced some challenges. But he always believed. He experienced the mountaintops. 
felt and he experienced the valleys. But he was committed. There were times when he felt God's presence and times when he didn't. There were times when things that just looked impossible for God to do for him what he said he would do. But Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's where it starts. Do you believe your feelings? Or do you believe God's revealed truth? Let's bow our heads. Now, there may be some of you here or online who are not followers of Jesus. Uh, it's belief in Jesus that makes us the salt of the earth. It transforms our identity. And what the scripture tells us is that Jesus was the Word of God, the Word made flesh. And He made His dwelling among us. The truth of God came to live and show the way to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our faith begins in trusting what God's Word has revealed about Jesus. And here's what it says. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and was raised from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sins and enjoy eternal life and abundant life with God. That's the good news. And that's where it all starts. And you can come into belief in Jesus today. You can, it can be a very emotional experience or it can just be something that happens in your soul where you just believe. And that belief transforms us. And then after we become children of God, just like the Israelites, we're going to experience high highs we're going to see God move mountains. But listen, we worship the God who moved the mountain, not the mountain that was moved. I want you to be honest about where you are. Is, is the quality and commitment of your faith, is it dependent upon your emotional state? Is it dependent upon circumstances? Are you two people all rolled up into one? Like a lot? Or are you the same? Listen, if, if you recognize this tendency toward mountaintop spirituality, I, I just want to encourage you, pray and ask God to change your mind. Ask Him to give you the faith to believe that He is who He says He is no matter what's happening, and that you are who He says you are no matter what's happening. Listen, you, you, don't, you don't want to go through life pursuing a mountain, a mountaintop. Make your life's pursuit the honor and glory of God. 
changes everything. It doesn't just transport us, it transforms us. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm, I, I think I'm in a pretty good place here. But God is bringing to your mind someone that's really struggling with this, that just kind of been set adrift because, because they're always searching for the next spiritual high. I want you to pray for them. I want you to commit to pray for them this week that they will see God's truth. Trust it. Father, we are thankful, so thankful for those mountaintop experiences that confirm what we believe and who we believe in. Lord, forgive us when we are desperate for another sign, another miracle, another mountaintop. Help us to be desperate for you and you alone. We know your word says if we seek you, we will find you. We are grateful, Lord, that when you move the mountain, you take its place. Help us to hunger and thirst for you. And Lord, make us salty again for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.